Vasabhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadanto suche do ye ola hudi san miao san putoshi. Namo sadanto suche do ye ola hudi san miao san putoshi. Wu shang shen shen wei miao fa bai qian wan jie nan zao yu. Wo jin jian wan de shou chi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shifu Shangren Gawei Shishong. Dharma Master, Dharma Friends, good evening. Welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. Um, we're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and it's Saturday, February 6th. We're looking into the Flower Adornment Sutra. It's called the Avatamsaka Sutra. If you say it in Sanskrit. Uh, we've got some seats in front, by the way, three or four here. People are welcome to come down and sit up front. Um, we're looking into one particular chapter called the uh, Ten Grounds chapter. And before we start every week, we first we chant the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and you'll find it right here on the front cover. So I'd like to invite you to turn to that, please, and we'll invoke the assembly of the Avatamsaka. Namo Oh, 
please turn in your text to page 84 and 85. Each of you should have one of those texts in front of you. We're on stanza number two. The English says, in one thought, they know the three periods of time. So we're trying to keep our link to our source alive. So we do the, we do the Chinese as well. So those of you whose Chinese is just beginning, it's a good chance to try those sounds out and, and put them in your ear and put them in your mouth. And if you're really courageous, you can look at those Chinese characters and, and uh, find patterns and figure out what they might mean. It's a writing system that's been on the planet way longer than our alphabet, certainly. <coughs> okay, are we ready? Let's do the Chinese first. We're on page 84, stanza number two. Yi Turn to the right here, page 85. In one thought, they know the three periods of time. Yet they make no aimless discriminations. They make use of each different season to appear before beings in every world. Okay, let's go back to the Chinese and see if we can't do it in a melodic way that can put it into our hearts. Here we go. probably were chanted with a melody because it helps it go in when you're trying to memorize and this was oral tradition back when. Okay, for folks who are here for maybe the first time or haven't been for a while, this is a very, very ancient 
uh, Buddhist text, words spoken by the Buddha, and pretty reliably we can say that it's been on the planet for mm, two and a half millennia, 2,500 years at least. And that's a long time for a text to survive and to be still in our hands and in our ears. So uh, that's one of the appeals all by itself of coming to our sutra lecture is to get to touch a living document that has been in our heritage, in our gene pool, in our knowledge base for all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, 2,500 years. That's one. And of those texts, of the, the words the Buddha spoke, this is said to be, according to our tradition, to the Mahayana, they say this is the first one that he spoke. Actually, it's the, the second, but he said it at the same time, which is immediately upon his awakening beneath the Bodhi tree. The Buddha talked about this particular text. And it's the Bodhisattva path that he's talking about. The Bodhisattva path means... It's a way to lead your life that leads to a very selfless uh, style. The, what the Buddha is teaching here is not only attitudes of mind, but also practices, ways to keep that, those selfless attitudes in place in all different situations. And in order to do it, um, our ordinary ways of thinking, our ordinary perspectives have to be greatly expanded. They have to be uh, re-engineered. We've got to go from 1.0 to 2.0, definitely, uh, in order to, to make the mind contain the perspectives of the Bodhisattva path. For example, look at our first chapter, our first uh, stanza tonight. In one thought, they know the three periods of time, yet they make no aimless discriminations. What is being talked about? It's talking about the mind of this person called a bodhisattva and the, the context, the, the um, fundamental understanding of these bodhisattvas is they are people. They're you and me. Um, no different. Bodhisattvas are not avatars. They're not uh, um, gods. They're not special gifted beings. They're people who practiced being unselfish who used the mind in from the Buddhist point of view the most basic way that humans can use their mind it's a very human experience but most of the time we don't think about using our minds that way or we never see anybody do it so we don't get a, a model we don't see it working and if it's it's way harder if we only get it theoretically if we can actually see somebody who can do that then it, it's possible so that's the pretext of this sutra. So what is it? Yi nian zhi san shi. Look at the Chinese over there. One thought, no three shi. Here means periods of time. Means past, present, and future. One thought, the mind can contain what was, what is, and what will be. Hmm. Okay, well, hmm, those scientifically inclined, uh, and especially if you've worked with particle physics or um, if you've worked with uh, bubble chambers and events 
you know that time becomes very flexible. Time becomes almost an abstraction. What is the past? Ooh, good question. What is the future? Mm, harder yet. Essentially, theories. Because almost any proposition that you can set down, you can find exceptions to it. This is true, except when it's not. This is what we used to think was absolute. Well, there's new evidence that it's no longer absolutely true. That's the status of, of cutting edge of quantum physics and particle physics. You can have in quantum, you can have things happen simultaneously that have no particular correlation and there one is over here and one is over here. It's hard to find the link between them. Well, the Buddha says, yep, correct. The mind contains them all. All of these states are part of the mind. Why don't we know that? Well, immediately as soon as we touch on this, we're into brain science. This is the realm of neurochemistry and uh, neurobiology, looking into the mind, the human mind. And when I say that, I'm not pointing specifically to the, the thing that we in the West say is the mind, the brain inside the skull. Mm, the mind here that knows the three periods of time is not necessarily located here. Is it the Chinese particularly go here? You know, in my, in my mind, when they talk about mind, they point to their heart. So heart and mind, xin, are the same words. Well, boy, it's confusing. We're just suddenly at sea. You know, how do you make sense of all of this? The Buddha says, not theoretically, but you can experience it. Just sit here and your mind will start to see that that flexible boundary of that was yesterday, tomorrow hasn't come, kind of gets permeable. Those walls allow you to pass through. Those aren't fixed divisions anymore. Past is not necessarily past. Future, although it hasn't come, is still knowable. The claim here is that the Bodhisattva knows what's coming, he knows what was, and furthermore, it's in e in, in one single thought. Okay, does that kind of challenge our knowledge of our understanding of, of the time and space that we live in? Furthermore, our, that's a link, the next line over there on the right, wuyo fun bia. He doesn't, she doesn't, fun bia. Interesting. Look at those two words on the, the last two words of the first line. Fun has a knife in it. And above is the character for eight. That word F-E-N, fun, the character above it is eight and then a knife. Then the character on the right also contains the word for knife, although it's written in a, in a different formulation, but it's still the word for knife. And so here we have a lot of cutting going on, a lot of chopping up. Funbia means to discriminate, to use the mind in an analytical way that cuts into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And for sure, that's a really reliable way of gaining knowledge, right? If you want to pass your driver's license test, what do you do? You start on page one. You keep on going, keep turning the page, looking at the pictures, learning the rules, and memorizing them, and then putting them into your your habit patterns till you've got them. Otherwise, you won't pass that test. So we have to divide it up into manageable chunks. From the Buddhist point of view, that use of the mind is not wrong or bad, 
but it's not the use of wisdom. Wisdom, the way the Buddha is describing it, takes all those little pieces and integrates them into the mind itself. Pulls back that analytical function that wants to know by dividing up into smaller pieces, reductionism, reducing it to the smallest so you can know the biggest. The Buddha says, mm, can do that, but you know what? Endless discrimination will lead you not to awakening. Instead, he says, look at the mind that makes the discriminations and see if you can catch that at work and set it free from the eye information, the ear information, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind's own information. See if you can't find the place where eye organ meets sight object. Things we see, colored, moving, dark, light. See if you can find where the eye meets those things we see. The colors in our Buddha hall, the lights. Where are we seeing that? If we know, if we can catch our eye doing that, and right this instant we are. We are making that discrimination. I can look down and see Chinese characters in my book. Our eye is meeting that information. Okay? If we can catch us doing that, if I can catch myself doing that, I have a chance to turn discrimination back to wisdom. Nothing wrong with discrimination, but that's not the only function. And that's what the Buddha discovered sitting beneath the Bodhi tree in meditation, was that there is a place where the six senses meet the six sense objects. Furthermore, consciousness is in there discriminating. Oh, I've never seen those Chinese characters. Oh, what about the F-E-N-B-I-E? Oh, that's a little closer. That's alphabet. I know that. But the... I don't recognize those. Right? Those are unusual. Those are foreign. Consciousness goes in and says, uh-uh, don't know what those are. Okay? That's the deal. That's the aimless discriminations. Buddha said, if we only do that from cradle to grave, we will never leave birth and death. We'll constantly be in this cycle of coming into being, passing away, coming back, passing away. It's in that unskillful use of the six sense organs that we move into samsara. It's in recognizing how those six sense organs also arise from something pulling them back and integrating them into our wisdom faculty that we leave samsara and attain nirvana. It's precisely that that the Buddha was doing as he sat beneath the Bodhi tree. Okay? So, as I'm saying this, what I want to say, I want to make it clear that the Bodhisattvas make no aimless discriminations. That's not discriminating against making aimless discriminations. That's discriminating in the other sense of meaning pejoratives. Nothing wrong with making use of the mind like a, a good computer, but not as efficient as a computer. Nothing wrong with making discriminations. But if we only know that use of the senses, then we haven't learned what the Buddha learned. 
And by sitting, by meditating, by calming the six senses, there is a point where if we're using this method, we actually can turn the senses around and recognize that that connection with the sense objects is voluntary. That's something we can choose to do or choose not to. That is when wisdom arises. So, when we can do that, guess what happens? Past, present, and future are seen as discriminations. Okay? How do I know there was a yesterday? Mm. Was it just something that I named? Mm. We spend a lot of time on systems that say one o'clock, midnight, noon, right? We really invest in our clocks, in our calendars. That's something that our cultures need. We have to do that. And it has it's based on rotation of the planet, rotation of the solar system, rotation of the galaxy, etc. That's very useful function. The Buddha says the mind can find a place where all of that is seen as construct, something that people make for expedient use, because it's helpful to know yesterday, tomorrow. The mind can go beyond that, says the sutra, and that's where bodhisattvas live. How interesting, how interesting. Kind of intimidating, because, man, I demand, I, how many times a day do I look at my watch? I've graduated to my phone, because my watch is often fast or slow. But you go to the phone, let's see here, yep, 7.56, okay. So, we check that a lot, because that time is important, you want to be on time. You'll miss your program if you're late. You'll miss your playing if you're late. So bodhisattvas are on time. They make their planes. They also look at their wristwatches. But they know that that is something that we agree on in order to accomplish other things. Time is not absolute. Space is not absolute. Okay? Further... They make use of every different season to appear before beings in every world. Okay, let's look at the Chinese. Zhong zhong shi bu tong yi shi yu shi jian Many, the zhong zhong means multiple. It means variety of, various, okay? Various shi, time. It's like the author's playing with us. Here he says, they know in a single in a single thought they can know past, present, and future. And implied is that they do away with them. They don't pay any attention to time. They don't discriminate among past, present, and future. However, each, multi, literally, kind, kind time or season, each not the same, they use those different seasons in order to in order to appear in the world to teach people how not to take time too rigidly, not to get too hung up on time. Um, contradiction. It's contradictory right in four lines. It's saying bodhisattvas pay no attention to time, but you know what? They sure do 
know when to show up and when, what to say when they do. They're, they're never, they never miss the opportunity. They're never off. Okay. We can either be upset by that or we can think it's, you know, we can react to these, this text giving us a contradiction, saying it's nonsense. Or we can say, hmm, what is it trying to tell us? Um, everybody's free to make their own use of it however you want to look at it I've changed my thinking about this at various times as I've had a relationship with this text um, at first when I first ran into contradictions like this how bodhisattvas do one thing they do A and they also do B and A and B are ex mutually exclusive. One thing you can do is react to it and dismiss it. Another thing you can do is say, um, I don't get it. This must be talking to somebody else. This is way out there. Maybe this is not for me. Right? Another thing you can do, which I've found really useful and helpful, is to suspend judgment. To look at the text and say, all right, I think I understand what the words are saying. I don't have to understand it immediately in order to continue reading it. It's possible that I can get it, but not through using the mind that, I'm, that I have right now. If I hold it in front of me and keep an open mind, maybe it will fit like a jigsaw puzzle. If I can look at it without judging, maybe the sutra wants to be understood and with a little bit of patience, it will connect because I will have expanded my categories or my capacity to understand it. That's, I think, a useful way to do it. And that doesn't mean, number one, you're gullible. It doesn't mean you're a true believer. It doesn't mean that you are like a cult follower, uncritical. Right? You swallow it without even chewing it because you're going to get something from the community. You'll get some, some reward by joining in without criticizing. None of those. None of that. What I'm saying, suggesting is, take it seriously. I mean, look at what it says. What does it say? It says, bodhisattvas know the past, the present, and the future in a single thought. Well, that's not me. I can't with my current mind. And yet... In the middle of this thinking that knows so much, their mind is so big, they can know past, present, and future, and yet they're not in there naming, forming, analyzing, criticizing. They're not using the mind like a knife, right? Or fun be it. They're not chop, 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 analyzing and critiquing. Okay, so in other words, time is very different for a bodhisattva. And at the same time, in each and every different season, let's say, for example, if we take 时 here, time as season, 
summer, fall, winter, spring, they appear precisely on time to teach living beings. How interesting. They're funny beings, these bodhisattvas. Their use of the mind is really different than my use of the mind. Okay, as I look at that, what I can do is say, I don't get it right away. Seems like a contradiction. It seems to be an inner illogic here. It's not, it's not logical. How can both things be true? Well, I'm suggesting that if we can look at that and say, I don't get it right away, but there's something compelling. There's something that kind of teasing about that that makes me want to chew on it a bit. I don't have to apply this criteria, right, wrong, yet. Hang on before you judge it right or judge it wrong. Okay, That's all we need to do to look at it, work with it, think about it, and think, okay, bodhisattvas and time are really interesting. In one thought, they can know the past, they can know the future. And furthermore, they're right here in the present. Okay? And still their minds are not in there critiquing, looking only at the next... They're not looking at their wristwatch all the time. At the same time, they're really on time to teach. They know summer, fall, winter, spring precisely, and they know how to teach. Interesting. Interesting. How about me? Hmm... Mm. time is like um, kind of like water to a fish you don't notice how much we don't notice how much time rules us if you've ever lived on a farm or if you've ever lived uh, in a rural area where Maybe you don't have electricity. How much the less do you have phone calls? Do you have uh, telephone? All of the things that, all the conveniences that modernity brings us, time takes on a different character really fast. Really, really fast. Not that you do without time, but you know, for example, if you have big animals, you feed those animals in the morning. Right? You get up early because you hear it. Right? What is it? Time to milk the cows. You don't go down there, they don't let you forget it. They, they're uncomfortable. They need to be milked. And that's your bargain. It's time to feed the cows. What time is it? Time to feed the cows, says my non-watch, right? Oh, time to feed the cows, right? And if you've got chickens, chickens are hungry. The rooster, what does the rooster say? Uh, are we going to make barnyard sounds tonight? No, no, I'm not going to give you barnyard sounds. Uh, the rooster says, sun's coming up. However, my experience with roosters is they have really funny, funny clocks, Roosters can crow at sunset just as easily as they crow at sunrise. But it's true that they're up early and they remind you time to get up. So you do have like regular measures of time, but it's not tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Unless, unless I visited my grandma 
in uh, Sherbrooke, Quebec. Oh my goodness. My grandma uh, in Sherbrooke was a very, very proper Irish-Canadian housewife and she had a grandfather clock. My my grandfather had passed on early and uh, there were five kids and my dad was the youngest. Uh, no, second youngest. And I only visited that house twice in my life and I was very young, but I was very impressed with the clock. This big grandfather clock, one of the pendulums, you know. And here was the presence of time. My goodness, this clock. All night long. The house was never quiet because of this. But that was not what grandmother obeyed. You know what she did every day? Now I should tell you about Sherbrooke, Quebec. Sherbrooke is only about 30 miles north of the Vermont border. It's 100 miles east of Montreal. It's a fairly large town because there are two rivers that cross right in, in uh, Sherbrooke. It's really cold, really cold in Sherbrooke, Quebec in the winter. You can have snow one night that covers the cars. You come out in the morning, you can't find your car because there's this layer of white over the roofs of all the cars. And you can get your snow shovel out. You know? What you do when you drive in, when you come in at night, you plug your car in. Everybody has a heater in the engine of the car, which you plug in to the household current. Because otherwise you come out in the morning and you go, and there's dead silence because your engine has frozen. It's just too cold. So you plug it in. There's a little heater that keeps the oil below, <laughs> above freezing. So that's how cold it is. And people there eat a great deal of food. You eat a lot. The primary level, primary layer of, of warmth doesn't come from L.L. Beans or, you know, North Face. It comes from what you eat. My grandmother's clock my grandmother lived by a different clock than the rest of us because she baked. Every day of her life, my grandmother baked. Because why? She had her husband and five children hungry, going to go out into 30 below weather all day long, and she baked. She would get up in the morning and she would bake bread and pies and cookies and cake and fruit cake and plum pudding and, you know, shortbread and pancakes and waffles and all those things every day. Now, the plum pudding was special for holidays and the fruit cake was just like once a year. She'd bake, it, you know, 50 fruit cakes. But the bread and the pie and the cakes and the cookies every day and the muffins every day. And she would be there with her apron and covered with flour, white flour. My grandmother lived with white flour in her skin pores, you know, and in her eyebrows. And that was, she had to get, to, so her, her life, her time, had to do with the rising of the dough. And the timing of the, was the oven hot? You know, and I think it was probably gas, 
they had gas, it wasn't wood, because uh, this was a city. But she had, you know, you put the put the the bread dough in the oven when the oven's hot, and so she'd watch it heat up and watch. The, that was my grandmother's life. And then she had one other thing that she loved to do. Bless her heart. When the baking was done, and my dad, my grandfather was off to work, and the five kids are off to school or to work, she would take her apron off and and go uh, probably. Uh, take care of the, the dogs and the cats and the animals. And then it was time for lunch. And she would put her apron back on and cook for lunch. And then do the same again at night. But when the work was all over, she loved to hear about the headlines in the newspaper. She especially loved the disasters. <laughs> she would. My grandmother had a sound, which was, oh. She would hear about a plane crash. She'd go, oh. Like that. Poor grandma loved to hear about suffering because I think it gave her a feeling of security to know that her world, she would say, her world was safe and complete and round. You know, she, Lord knows she had enough tragedy in her own life because of having, you know, four sons and a daughter. And when she would, oh, oh, she would say when she heard about ships going down or, you know, the economy tanking and things. So, anyway, that was grandma's life. And I could tell that she loved those stories because it somehow it gave her a feeling of, of things could be worse. It could be worse, right? It's worse for them. I don't have it so bad. She had a hard life of work. She worked really hard. And as long as things weren't crashing around her, she felt a little better about herself because it wasn't happening to her. But that was her sound. And I remember it. So, but that was, that was her time. You know, so time, what is time? Time, if you don't live the way we do, it's very different. It's a natural kind of thing. And uh, certainly my memory of my father's home of Sherbrooke extends through Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York State, and uh, certainly through Ontario and and Quebec and Nova Scotia, Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island and all, which is autumn colors. Oh my goodness. Autumn colors in that part of the world tells you the times are different. It's autumn. There's color like we've never seen in California. I guarantee it's not the same. Another thing that happens there where you know time is maple sap rises maple sap. You know spring is coming because the maple trees which is what produces the colors right? the maple trees change the maple trees produce sap and if you live in California I don't know, maybe there are maples in California somewhere but it's not the same maple syrup maple candy maple fudge and all the things that come from maple trees grow from those sugar maples in New England and there is a time when the sap rises and when the sap rises everything else stops if you sugar off the trees which is you go out and you gather the sap because it rises at one time winter's over spring is coming and the sap's coming up and you take it out of the trees and turn it into maple products and there's a time when you do that and everything else 
falls, you know, takes takes the back seat at that time. So bodhisattvas don't necessarily look at their wristwatches, but they may. They might have a grandfather clock in their living room, uh, but they certainly know when the time is right to teach. So it says, they make use of every season in order to teach beings just when the time is right, at exactly the right time. Bill? Phil's question was, um, do we measure, correct me if I get it right, get it wrong. The notion of time is measured from human terms, pretty much a given. Why don't we look at time from other perspectives, such as realms of the heavens and realms of animals? And by golly, you know, let me, let me take a step back from this. Why do we look at Buddha's sutras? Many of you, many of us, come to Buddhism because we like to meditate. We are drawn to meditation. Our lives go pretty fast and we kind of live like yoga. You know, we go to yoga so we can learn some balance and flexibility and harmony. Um, then you discover that there's way more to yoga than you thought. Well, we come to Buddhism, I think, many of us, through the same way. We come to meditate and then Maybe somebody gives a Dharma talk and we get some of the lists of things. We get greed, anger, and stupidity and precepts, concentration, and wisdom. Maybe somebody mentions taking refuge or we hear the lore of the Buddhas. Oh, Buddhas, plural? Yeah. There's that Buddha and there's that Buddha and there's that Buddha and there's lots of Buddhas. And then on and on and on. We, we realize this is a big deep ocean. Okay? When we come to the Sutra, particularly the Avatamsaka Sutra, this is the, the sutra of all the Buddha's teachings that has the broadest scope. So I'm giving people uh, a little bit of back story if this is surprising to you to come on Saturday night to hear a Buddha Sutra and realize we're talking about time. Where do you go in our postmodern education, if you want to learn about time, well, science, certainly, mm, physics, optics, astronomy, okay? we talk about light years, sidereal time, star time, okay? so boy, we're into a dig, big deep realm. What does it have to do with Buddhism? Everything. Why? Because knowledge lives in the mind. The Buddha is talking about the mind. 
he is someone who understood his mind at a new level. What he explained is what the sutras are. The sutras are what the Buddha explained about what he learned when he looked into his mind. So that's what we're doing. And from week to week to week, it's never the same. That's why it's kind of fun. People who get the flavor of these sutras come back and it's never the same. And I, you know, I just follow the text as it pops up. So that's why tonight we're going to talk about time. Back to Phil's question. Phil's question. Mm, perspectives on time. Absolutely, we could, uh, let's say, start over. The Buddha, in describing time, does not only look at it from a human point of view. There are specific teachings about when you go up into other heavens, time expands. Mm, what do we know? We know from good science fiction that a lot of a lot of stories say that if you go out, let's say, to Mars, let's suppose we're in our planetary system. You go out to Mars, suppose, hypothetically, and you pass three years on the planet Mars, and who, I don't know how long it takes to get to Mars. Maybe somebody's got that statistic. I see some unknown teenager is surfing the web right up in the balcony, maybe on Google you could find out immediately. But don't bother. That's okay. Don't let me interrupt you. Huh? Two years to Mars? Thanks. Two years to Mars. Two years back. Okay. So you've been three years on Mars, two years out, two years back. We've got seven years. When you come back, will you have passed the equivalent, will you have passed seven years in human time? Hmm. You, you could do the equation, but chances are you'd be Rip Van Winkle. You'd be younger than people who on earth pass through, mm. you know, that the mind goes, oops, wow, how do you figure, is time on earth shorter or longer? Precisely what the Buddha described. He says, here, for example, he says that there are three realms that are within samsara, that are within birth and death. There's the realm of desire, the realm of form, the realm of formlessness. We're in what's called the desire realm. In the desire realm, what do we have? Hells, ghosts, animals, asuras, humans, and gods. That's called the six paths of rebirth, right? That's the desire realm. Okay, there are two more levels of gods, of heavens, of tien, fajia, heavens, that go beyond the desire realm. There's the form realm, which are what are called Brahma gods, the Brahma heavens. And in the Brahma heavens, people who can enter dhyana, who can meditate and enter chan ding, dhyana samadhi, can experience the state of mind of the gods in the Brahma realm, the form realm. Furthermore, there's another realm with four more heavens called the formless realm that gods inhabit. When you get out of the desire realm, you go to the form realm. When you get out of the form realm, you go to the formless realm. When you get out of the formless realm, you're in the realm of arhats. You've ended birth and death. 
Okay, so we talk about arhats, four levels of arhats. Those are beings who have gone beyond, they say, gone beyond the triple realm, gone beyond the three realms, meaning out of that formless realm. The Buddha described this exactly like a road map. He said, go beyond this realm, there's that realm. Go beyond that realm, there's that realm. Go beyond that realm, you've ended birth and death. For you, time and space are very, very different. Okay, stay with me. When we go above the human realm into the realm of devas, time starts to expand. So Phil, there's your answer. Time starts to expand as you go into the heavenly realm. They say that the gods in the formless realm, in the highest realm, have really, really, really long lifespans and their bodies are refined to the point that they're pure consciousness. They no longer have a physical body like ours that eats, that goes to the bathroom, that puts on clothes, that feels cold and heat, like that. And their lifespans of that consciousness are very, very long. So, time expands as your blessings increase. And as you become a deva, what makes the difference between human and deva is more blessings. And that's an actual content. It's not just blessed. It means you actually have this money in the bank called blessings from your own conduct, from the good things you do. So, this is very systematic. It's very textured, right? And if I start tugging on these threads, there's the lecture. There's a week. There's a lifetime of study in this. But, yes, time expands as you go into the realm of the heavens. Okay, let's get back into the human realm. What do they say? Time passes faster when you're having a good time. Right? You've experienced that. When you're happy, it just seems to zip right by. Think of a, a happy movie. It's a really good movie. seems to go by really fast. When you're bored, when you're being scolded, when you're being punished. Remember when you were a kid? Oh, it goes forever. Detention in school? Right? It takes forever. The clock just crawls. So, same mind, but time is perceived to be shorter or longer. How funny. What's the principle? Time is fluid. Time is not fixed. In fact, time is a construct. People make time because it's useful to divide our experience into manageable units. There are many calendars. If I had Google open right this minute, I would type in calendars, and I bet we could get hundreds at use right now. The Hebrew calendar, the Mayan calendar, right? the Gregorian calendar, the sidereal calendar. We're currently fixed on one. I'm not even sure when we fixed on our current Gregorian time, but we have had other times. I was, where was I? Uh, is it Indiana? Or is it Oregon? There's a couple counties that refuse to do daylight savings. Right? And you're an hour late if you're in that county. Just keep driving, you cross the boundary. Oh, sorry, time is not that. You thought you were, oh, I missed my program. You know. Where is it? Indiana. Indiana field. There's another place. Oregon. Right? I think there's another one in Oregon, too, does the same. 
parts parts are half time. Right. And you go, that's confusing. You know, but I thought time was, you know, so it's not. Time is very flexible. Time is very fluid. Hmm. Interesting. Right this minute, I will tell you. Aha, you don't believe me. <clears throat> you thought that today was February 6th. I'm sorry, this is Shi Arshusan. This is the 23rd day of the 12th lunar month, right this minute. See? What, did, what do you know? Right? We've got two calendars happening right this minute that are in common use. This is our annual Buddhist calendar, and it's got a lunar calendar in it. What is coming up this weekend? <laughs> what do you say? How do you call it, Ty? What's it called? Super Bowl! Super Bowl! No. I've, I'm sorry. I said it wrong. Let me ask you again. Super Bowl is coming up this weekend, and that is definitely something we measure stuff by. You remember that year, man? He's faded back. Well, okay. I said it wrong. What is coming up next weekend? Lunar New Year's. The first day of the first lunar month. Big deal. If you happen to be in a country where you celebrate that and Guonian, right? It's Chinese New Year's, Lunar New Year's. In the Vietnamese calendar, it's that same thing. And it's a big, it's the end and the beginning. Okay, my point is what? Simultaneously coexisting with, I mean, if I ask you in the Western world, what is February 14th? Valentine's Day. Don't forget, guys, by the way. Valentine's Day. It's like, yeah, okay, big deal, or not. You know, it's a marketing opportunity in Asia. Valentine's Day? You know. So, okay, time is, as they say, turbid. The evil time of the five turbidities is one way that the, that the Buddha Dharma looks at calendars. It's fluid and flexible. Okay, that's one point. The important other point is that the mind contains it all. The mind that the bodhisattvas, as we're hearing about bodhisattvas, right? Praising the bodhisattvas. In one thought, they know the three periods of time. You don't have to mm, move somewhere, go to the heavens to know the past and the future. And they also make no aimless discriminations. They're not constantly checking their watch. They make use of each different season. As the times come and go, they appear before living beings to speak the Dharma. That's what bodhisattvas do. They want us to wake up and lose our attachment to things being rigidly thus. Because they're not. Okay? They're not. Um, there was a big change back in the 60s. Uh, kind of a cultural hero named Ramdas. People know Ramdas. He's a local. Lives in Marin. Bless his heart. He. Well, He's in Hawaii now. 
Why? Yeah, yeah. Wrote a book called Be Here Now. Watershed book. Be Here Now. I remember when Be Here Now was a buzzword. Why? Because Ram Das was experimenting. Alpert. He was a very intelligent professor from Harvard who uh, was experimenting with mm, hallucinogens and such. That wasn't the important thing. The important thing was that he spoke against the industrial push towards the future. The marketplaces pushing us to the future. Mm. Ramdas said, "Be here now." In other words, stop and sniff the flowers. And his experiments with hallucinogens and other things. And then later, Ramdas turned on to Hinduism. He went east and looked, and he found Professor Alpert found teachers, and he studied with them. He's a serious seeker of of alternative realities. He discovered a door in the present moment. Aldous Huxley did the same. Doors of perception, heaven and hell, and Gary Snyder, Allen Ginsberg, Philip Whelan, the Beats, who touched Eastern ways of thinking, all said something akin to, you know, leaning forward, looking for the future, takes us off center. Come back to the present. Be here now. And the quality of life changes. Suddenly, our lives expand horizontally instead of always leaning towards getting rich, getting successful, becoming famous, becoming important, graduating, getting the pension, dying, right? All of the things that we do that are future-focused prevent us from experiencing the fullness of our being now. Okay, for Buddhists who are meditators, this seems like a given. Or for any kind of spiritual individual who sits still, suddenly this moment gets texture. It gets dimension. This has become this, this awareness that I, I point to Ramdas in that book because he was one of the first ones to say it in a buzzword that actually caught the cultural imagination. Be here now became kind of like a smiley face, you know, you smiley face, two dots, the eyes. That was ubiquitous, right? It became a uh, part of our came part of our keyboard, our keyboard etiquette. A smiley face. It's so understood. Ramdas's buzzword, "Be here now." Stop people. We had the. It was so catchy, so terse. Be here now. It's very few letters, and yet it contained this whole physical experience of slowing down and living horizontally, 
living spherically instead of being focused towards the future. Um, it has become so accepted and normal that anywhere you go in a meditation group, and I'm thinking particularly about Spirit Rock and our connection with what Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sylvia Borstein have been teaching, among others, as well as the Goenka Vipassana world, the world the word is mindful. Okay? Be here now in the Buddhist context has become mindful. Live mindfully. Enter the room mindfully. Eat mindfully. Breathe mindfully. What does it mean? Mindful is now. Fill this moment with all of the sensation, all of the stillness, all of the balance that we can allow it to be. Okay? Now, it's such a standard, mindful, that it's taken as a given. Kind of that's what we're trying to do. The Zen world did the same thing. Mindful. Um, all of the teachings of the Zen masters are focused on present moment. It's a buzzword. Present moment. Present moment. Come back from looking in the future. Stop regretting the past. Stop obsessing about mistakes we made. Be here now. Fill the mind with all of these sensations that we don't have to reach for. We don't have to create them. They're here all the time. But whenever we're worried about what's going to happen and regretting what did happen, we miss this moment, which is completely full, and then the next moment, completely full, etc. So that is a kind of a standard teaching in meditation circles, yoga as well. Here's the bodhisattva who's doing something different again. Bodhisattva is not saying, be here now in the fullness of your senses. He's saying, hmm past exists, the future will be, and I'm here in the present, fundamentally there's no difference. The now that I am being here in expands to contain everything. The mind expands and doesn't attach to past, present, future, or a self that is discriminating or being in touch with. Right. So this is an instruction on how bodhisattvas go beyond be here now to dissolving the boundaries of a self that is here or the six senses that are experiencing. It's a different use of the mind. Again, coming fully around to making use of time once again to teach but without the self. Right? That's the power of this verse. In they do away with the mind that's looking ahead, fearing the past, merging the boundaries of the three, getting rid of discrimination, and bringing discrimination right back to teach. Right? There's a, a whole progression in these four lines of how bodhisattvas make use of time once again, but they do it without wanting anything from it other than showing up to teach right on time right on time my experience with um, 
Master Shrinhua was was that that in a really the word that, that came up all the time was inconceivable, meaning hard to imagine, couldn't think of it. In an inconceivable way, this teacher, this is his picture here, was able to use time exactly as this verse describes in order to teach people not only like in the nick of time. We have all these idioms, right? In the nick of time, right on the money, right at the right spot, the last second. But also, not just like, that's external, right? Oh boy, the last instant. But there was an internal on time that Master Hua would use. The teachings would come right when you were able to absorb it and not before. Over and over again, we would get just a word, sometimes something very ordinary, very simple. But the timing was so precise that you took that simple word and it was the last piece of the puzzle. You put that piece down, there's the whole picture in front of you. Or it's like the key, it's like click, something opened. And it seemed effortless because the timing was so perfect. It was just exactly what you needed to take the next step. No more, no less, not too late, not too, just right. Now, you know, that's the way I experienced that. And people would say, you know, other disciples would say, you too, huh? Yeah, boy, Shrifu just, he always seems to know exactly. It might be that that's just our perception of it. And maybe we don't even know how many teachings Shrifu dispensed that were not the right time and as a result we didn't see them. That's, that's a possibility too. That, you know, he's like tossing all these seeds out hoping that one will plant. But boy, when it planted, it was just the right time. Perfect, perfect timing. Just amazing. Um, I'll tell you, I've got a story about that which I'll tell you in a minute. We need to move on. I don't want to lecture one verse night will never finish if that's what we do. So let's move on to the next one. Lue shuo qiu zhu fo yi qie sheng gong de fa sheng guang da xin liang deng xu kong jie To sum it up, they seek all Buddha's supreme merit and virtue. They bring forth a thought vast and great. Its measure equals the entirety of space. To sum it up, they seek all Buddhas, supreme merit and virtue. They bring forth a thought vast and great. Its measure equals the entirety of space. Okay, Lu um, Shuo, in general, why is, why is he summing up? He's summing up because these are verses that are repeating the long text that we've had. We're in the last part of the chapter and this is 
the repetitive verses and in that in the text that preceded this there were steps right there's the bodhisattva uh, who spoke it Vajra treasury um, talked a lot and there was kind of introduction then the various things that the first ground bodhisattva does and then explanations and then exhortations and then a summary so He's summing up the introduction, talking about who those bodhisattvas are. So, they seek all Buddhas, supreme, sublime, that's a really important idea from, a, from this sutra. The concept of it's two Chinese words, and we got a debate going as we translate this is it two things or is it one thing that they use two words to describe and uh, I don't have one answer for that it could be one or it could be the other um, you'll find people who will argue for both um, and I'll show you why and it's this is really really valuable I think to understand what the sutras say Buddhist practice is all about. Why we would want to live or study or learn from the Buddhas, the Buddha or the Buddhas, is here in these words, gongda, merit and virtue. Fa sheng guang da xin. They fa to put out, sheng, bring forth, guang da xin, a vast, great xin thought. That's the word for heart. You see that character there, Xin? It's on the third line that we just read. That's a picture of the heart with the muscles and the veins, the aorta and the vena cava and the, the heart arteries and the veins. That's, that's there. That's the picture of an actual heart. And it doesn't mean literally they bring forth the vast and great heart because that's not what it's talking. It's not anatomical heart. It's a picture of a heart, but metaphorically it means thought. You could also say attitude. Um, Father Thomas Hand, the Jesuit priest down in Mercy Center, liked to call it psyche. He used the Jungian word, psyche. They bring forth a vast and great attitude. Psyche is kind of state of mind, attitude, mm, perception, all wrapped up into one. Liangdong, Xu Kongjie whose measure is as big as all of space. So these bodhisattvas have a thought that is... How big is space? Mm. Can't measure. Right? Nothing bigger. That's how big their minds are. So there's a key to what a bodhisattva is. Somebody who's got a very big mind. And that's humbling if you think about our minds. How many things came up today that just pissed us off? Right? How many things came up today that we reacted against and rejected? How many things came up today that made us irritated? Right? Um, if you're not a football fan, what's going to happen tomorrow is going to make no sense to your mind. Will <coughs> till Super Bowl madness. Right? It's like, boy... That's a, a real cultural moment. Is the Super Bowl? It's a big deal. 
It's a really big deal. But there, for people who don't do football, it's like, what in the world? Okay, well, our mind is in there, fundia, making discriminations, right? The bodhisattva goes, huh, a lot of people are interested in that. Here's an opportunity to teach. What can we learn? You know, what are the lessons of the Super Bowl? So, that's one idea. So, in order to sum it up, these bodhisattvas seek the Buddha's sheng gongda, sublime gongda. Let's go back to that. Gongda, Sanskrit, is called punya. And punya is... We got words that will fit it. It's like good stuff. The good stuff. Or the good stuff. Not just good stuff, but the good stuff. Meaning the qualities that you want. A Buddha is said to be, let's say a person who becomes a Buddha, you, when you become a Buddha, is someone whose punya is complete and full. And there's a way to measure it. Before you become a Buddha, you're not one yet because your punya, your gunda, has not been manifest. So, what is a Buddha? A Buddha is someone who is one, de bei, replete with 10,000 punya qualities replete with all of their innate virtue. Okay, I've introduced a new word there. This shangunda, the sublime, supreme merit and virtue, and I'm using two words here, is innate. It's in there already. You don't, when you become one, the bay, you don't get anything. Instead, you uncover something we've all had, but is now covered. Think gold under the ground. Think diamonds not yet mined. All that stuff is there. The Buddha, when he or she was cultivating out there, working hard, doing their spiritual practice, was shoveling. Right? Digging up the dirt that's between them and the gold. Mining out the rock between them and the diamonds. That's what cultivation is, is uncovering. To the end, you get to one, the bait. Full fully possessed of all 10,000, meaning the myriad kinds of virtuous qualities, the punya. So you don't get it, you uncover it. You smelt it is another really good word. Think of adding fire, right? That's what a Buddha is, is all those qualities are there. And the Chinese further define that stuff as light. How do you know when somebody's got the Tao Te, because they glow. They give off a quality. And it's not like a Christmas tree. It's not like a flashlight. But you can feel it. It's almost like infrared. You can't really see it or ultraviolet. Without a special meter, you can't really see it, but it's definitely there. When somebody's got those qualities awake, you feel it. You know it. You know it. They impress you. Not simple charisma. Charisma can be kind of shine your light. Actors can do that. Politicians can do charisma. And then they turn it off. You ever had that experience when you meet somebody and for the moment that they're looking at you, you feel like you're the most important person in the world and you're just dazzled by them and then you go to shake their hand and you see they're doing it to the person beside you, right? The other person, you know, and it's 
that's a useful quality if you want to get votes or sell real estate or you know or or uh, lobby for someone. But the charisma, the virtue that we're talking about, this light, is something that radiates from people who have taken the covers off their nature. Um, you can probably think of people in your life who have touched you because they had these qualities, these virtuous qualities. And so that's one thing about punya, about this gongda. The Chinese gives us two words. Gong is not the one that we use for virtue. De is. That second word, gong de. But together as a compound, they the gong part modifies the de. So it's another quality. There's another word, there's another compound that we see that also is translated kind of the same. It's called Tao, the, the virtue of Tao, of the Tao, the path, the way. And in the Chinese culture, we have Tao, the Jing, right? The classic of the Tao and its virtue, and that's the founding book of Taoism. That's the book that attributed to the writer, the philosopher named Lao Tzu. Okay, so Tao De and Gong De are kind of the same but kind of different. And there's another one to complicate it further is Fu De. Right? You have blessings and virtue. What's the difference between Fu, blessings, and De, virtue, and Tao De and Gong De? So we have three different things. We've got Fu, blessings. We've got Gong that first word, often called merit. And then we've got de, and de can be modified by tao, de, or gong, de, or fu, de. Sometimes they come together, sometimes they're different. So basically we've got three different things that I think are different, and maybe it helps us to think of them this way. There's fu, blessings, there's gong, merit, and de, virtue. And yet they all interrelate. Are they different? Are they the same? What happens when they come together? What are they? Here's the way I understand this, and time is rapidly closing here. In spiritual practice, there's there is definitely good things that happen to you when you practice in a spiritual way. Things change. You your life changes. Things come to you that are not money or possessions. They're inner spiritual qualities. Maybe you yourself don't know, but other people can see them in you. The one that is the closest to material stuff is blessings. People whose lives go really smoothly have blessings. People who always seem to kind of like slip the punch, here comes the punch, they just miss it. They're the one who walk away from the airplane crash or the one who gets the scholarship or the one who didn't get the flu or the one whose car never breaks down, you know, the ones whose kids don't give them trouble the one who's 
stories get published. You know, those are the results of blessings. The people who seem to be going along real well, but somehow the punch always catches them. Right? Their lives are always from one hard knock to the next are people who lack that fool. Now, not to say bad people, not to say, but we're looking at blessings. The Buddha said, being born in the heavens, being born in the hells, has a lot to do with the quality of your blessings. So you can have the blessings of the heavens, but still be in a human body. Who are those people? The masters of the universe, rich people. If you wanted to say, and this is a very easy target because he's so obvious, Bill Gates. Okay, let's just, you know, no matter what you think about Bill Gates or Microsoft or his products, right? Here's a man who, for years and years, was the world's richest man. Okay? And who was he? Harvard guy. Didn't do very well at Harvard. But had a genius for marketing other people's software, like Apple's. Never mind, we'll go there. But, okay, Bill Gates created a company, Microsoft, that made many, 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 many people wealthy. You are using his products if you touch a PC. No doubt, unless you're completely into open source and Unix, Linux, etc. But you've graduated to that from Microsoft. Okay, what is Bill and Melinda, what are Bill and Melinda doing with their money? A huge amount of good. They are, I talked to an African-American friend of mine who said, you don't diss Bill Gates in front of me. She said, I got grandbabies who are going to school because of that man. I don't want to hear no bad talk about Bill Gates in this house. He has given me something I couldn't provide for my own grandchildren. Right? Education. His, he, what is he fighting malaria now? Right? The Bill and Melinda Gates found it. Now some cynics can say, yeah, he had to give it away or else the government would take it away. You know, well, okay. But he did it, didn't he? He will be seen through history as a huge philanthropist. What creates blessings? I asked Master Hua. Shrifu said, making other people happy is the source of blessings. What is a good way to do that? Giving. So here's Bill Gates, you know, bless his heart. No matter what you... I don't, I don't know him. I never met him. But I, all I know about him is what I read and what people say but I can see that he's doing a huge amount of giving now. He's creating blessings. Maybe Bill Gates, just using Bill Gates' name as an example, I don't know the answer. Possibly Bill Gates was in the heavens before and lost a certain amount of blessings because he came back in the human realm, but he's cultivating the blessings that will take him back. This... Is it true? Is it? I don't know. But this is the kind of thing that we talk about if we're thinking about blessings. This, that when things go really well in your life, 
you have, you could say, you have what are called blessings. When things are not going so well, it's time to plant some blessings, cultivate blessings. How do you do it? Give. Make other people happy. Be less concerned about your own happiness. Share stuff more. Volunteer. Spend your time, your effort, your life benefiting others. You are investing in your blessings bank. Things go well when you've got blessings. Countries can have blessings. Mm, India, if you look at it that way, squandered its blessings to go from a country that in the Buddhist time was the most blessed country in the world to a country now where it's evident that there's blessings have run out in many places. There's lots of poverty in India. The United States of America is currently squandering its blessings, extracting all the goodness out of the soil, from the timber, from the water. We've created a, a toxic country in many, many ways right now. That's evident lack of blessings. We're following that cycle. We're on the downside of the cycle now. So, just to say, that's one way to look at the quality of life and taking charge of it. The Buddha described it this way, not as fatalistic, not as fate, right? He's saying, get into the world and plant blessings. Things will go well for you. May they go well for you. But definitely get in there. Work with it. It doesn't come from the heavens. It comes from your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, mouth, and heart. Right? Get in and create the, plant those blessings. Make people happy. So that's the exhortation. Okay, now mind you, that's not our word. That's not Wunda. That's the other one. That's Fu blessings. Next week, I'm going to go into Kung and De. Now, I'm giving you my interpretation as I have been struggling with Gong and De and Dao and Fu, these words, because why? They come up over and over and over in the sutra when enlightenment doesn't. You don't hear about enlightenment. You hear all the time about Dao De, virtue, the Buddha's virtues. And this is what Sheng Gong De, sublime Gong De, merit and virtue. It's a different quality. And yet, it's in human experience. So, that's what I wanted to share tonight. And um, we'll continue at this point next week. Um, we got to cover a few more verses per lecture or else we'll, we won't, we'll be here forever. But let me give you a bit of homework, if you don't mind. Um, we're coming up to New Year's, which in the Asian world is the end and the beginning and you definitely end you tie up all the loose ends you go through a 10 day period of decompression and you start over okay question is think about the year just passed in terms of blessings and virtue what what was different about this year that's closing that maybe you'd like to change for this coming year, the year of the tiger, 2010. What did we do this last year that you want to keep going to increase this coming year? And 
If you don't mind, I'd like to next week ask some folks just to share feelings about kind of like the, the currents. Think of tides in our lives. Can we identify blessings, virtue, merit in our lives from the good we've done or the trouble we've had? If we can focus in and find some of these real living experiences we've had, maybe merit and virtue can come alive. It's so important in this sutra. You can't overestimate how important these ideas are to the Buddha as he taught about it. And yet, somehow in our lives, it always seems somebody else's. That the power, the controls, or the levers are in somebody else's hands. Not. They're right in our hands, but often we don't recognize this kind of underground current of merit, virtue, and blessing. So we're going to dig into it more next week and try to identify some of these and uh, put our hands on the levers of, of our lives. Real cultivation. Okay, I'm going to go over and uh, get the guitar and we'll transfer the merit and then do some storytelling. On your um, Dharma request sheet, if you flip it over, you've got a dedication of merit there. Please make a wish. Share. Here's a chance to create some virtue by giving some blessings. Share with your mind. Hey.